Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hi friends, welcome back to the podcast. This week we'll be covering the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes for the dates August 29th through September 4th. We're so glad you're here because today we get to talk about two more books in the section of scripture called Wisdom Literature. And before we jump right into the books for this week, we kind of wanted to discuss um, wisdom literature and the themes that we've seen in the books that we've covered so far. And just take note of what we're seeing in these books as we've made our way through the wisdom literature section in the last couple of weeks. We've made our way through the book of Job, which is the only narrative present in wisdom literature. That means it's the only book that follows kind of a storyline. The book of Job, if you'll remember, works through themes of tragedy, suffering, and loss in spite of any individual's righteousness. Then, for the last couple of weeks, we've been in the book of Psalms, which contain vulnerable songs of worship, complaint, request, and the illumination of the human-divine relationship. This week, we'll be in the book of Proverbs, which contain observations on human behavior and attributes that are given to wisdom. These proverbs, you'll probably notice as you go through and read, read a little bit like our vending machine uh, metaphor or analogy that we've used on the podcast before, this idea of like, you put something good in and you get something good out. And in this way, we kind of think it's a little limited in its application, but proverbs still holds value in its illumination of action and consequence. Also in Proverbs chapter eight, we have a really lovely literary device employed within wisdom literature, and that's personification of the figure of wisdom. And we'll talk really, really briefly about that. Then we'll also talk about Ecclesiastes today, which this book reads a little bit differently from everything else that we've encountered so far. It honestly reads like advice from community elders with hard-won wisdom from a well-lived life. Ecclesiastes covers topics such as the inevitability of death, the impermanence of worldly wealth and bodily strength, and the seasonal nature of life. Just as a heads up, for next week, we're actually going to ignore the manual entirely and focus our efforts on the Song of Solomon, which is the last portion of wisdom literature, and we're really excited to get into that because, as you'll discover next week, 
the Song of Solomon contains sensual love poems of pleasure and admiration. So when we look at all of these pieces of wisdom literature, when read as a whole, these books really do traverse the spectrum of the human experience. There's something for everybody. For people who like poems, we have Psalms. For people who love a good story around the campfire, we have the book of Job. For people who like easy-to-remember snippets that can be applied broadly to any situation, we have Proverbs. People who enjoy... People who enjoy taking a whole picture, long-term view of life will appreciate Ecclesiastes, and those who find pleasure in the appreciation of the body and celebration of sensuality will find a gem in the Song of Solomon, which has been long underrated in the LDS tradition. But like we said, today we'll be focusing on Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, which are kind of like the Psalms in the way that they are both non-narrative, that means they don't tell a story, and that they're shorter than like long chapters telling a story. Um, but I would also say they're not nearly as poetic as the Psalms. So we're going to dig into something a little bit different today. Yeah. And if we just start from like, what's the general perspective or framework that, that we're moving through with the proverb, with the book of Proverbs? The true author of Proverbs, like most of the wisdom books, is unknown. Even though the first nine chapters are often attributed to Solomon, King Solomon, but that leaves the possibility for other authors for the remaining books. And it's immediately apparent, however, that based on the language used in many of the Proverbs, that a hefty portion of them were likely written by men for men, like so many other portions of scripture. The phrase, my son, is used as an address throughout the book and in chapter four. And in chapter four, it says, hear ye children, the instruction of a father. After chapter 10 in Proverbs, the language and the primary focus seems to soften a little bit, which is nice, which hints to us anyway, at a different voice or maybe a different author that's present in the text. After chapter 10, we lose the gendered addresses and references to immoral women, which is like a big focus on the first <laughs> 10 chapters. And the advice seems to be more considerate of a broader audience. Speaking to that notion of like gendered language, we see a lot in Proverbs. There's actually something really tricky that happens in the Come Follow Me manual, which we see in the app, like the version of the manual that we see in the app and also online, but not in the printed version. So in the online versions, the Come Follow Me manual says, quote, words of the scriptures apply to all. Some scripture passages refer only to men or only to women, such as Proverbs 3 or Proverbs 31. In most cases, however, the principles in these passages apply to everyone, end quote. And that's not what's printed in the physical manual. So we want to explore and play with this idea that scriptures apply to all just a little bit more. In other episodes, we have covered the concept of gendered language, but it's a nice time for a bit of a refresher from one of our favorite articles titled Why Sexist Language Matters by Cheryl Kleinman. Yeah, I also want to tell like a funny, like cute little story about discovering this article. There was one time I was visiting Elise and I saw this article printed out on her desk and I was like, oh, I want to read that so bad, but I was really afraid of being nosy. So like for two years, I didn't ask her because I didn't want her to know that I saw this article on her desk. And then she's told me like three different times the name and the author of the, of the article until like finally I like wrote it down today and went to seek it out. But don't let my like weird forgetfulness 
sway you away from this article because it is seriously so good. Like you have to track it down. You have to read it. So in case you missed it the first time you said it, it's titled Why Sexist Language Matters by author Cheryl Kleinman. Okay, so we're going to dig into this article a little bit. All right. It starts out, Kleinman's primary purpose of this essay is to examine sexist language in everyday words and phrases such as freshman, congressman, and the ubiquitous you guys. She also includes mankind and the generic he, which is supposed to be a coverall for all of people, um, which we find commonly occurring in scripture. I love this quote from the article. Kleinman writes, quote, What's the big deal? Why does all this manning and guising deserve a place on my list of items of gender inequality? The answer is because male-based generics are another indicator, and more importantly, a reinforcer of a system in which man in the abstract and men in the flesh are privileged over women. It's no accident that man is the anchor in our language and woman is not, end quote. Kleinman goes on to address the common critiques of like pushing back against gendered language, especially when people will say things like, well, that's just the way it's always been. And instead, Kleinman advises us to consider the power dynamics at play, which are both illuminated by and reinforced by our language. Kleinman then, Kleinman then ends up capping her argument by saying, quote, all those man words said many times a day by millions of people every day cumulatively reinforce the message that men are the standard and that women should be subsumed by the male category. We know from history that making a group invisible makes it easier for the powerful to do what they want with members of that group. Perhaps that's why linguists perhaps that's why linguists use the strong language of symbolic annihilation to refer to the disappearance of women into male-based terms. We need to recognize that making women linguistically a subset of man or men through terms like mankind and guys also makes women into objects. If we aren't even deserving of our place in humanity in language, why should we expect to be treated as decent human beings otherwise? End quote. Oh, seriously? <laughs> like such a powerful, powerful paragraph. And I think the best part of this essay is Kleinman's call to action at the conclusion of the essay. She writes, quote, Now and then someone says that I should work on more important issues, like men's violence against women, rather than on trivial issues like language. Well, I work on lots of issues, but that's not the point. Working against sexist language is working against men's violence against women. It's one step. We've got to work on every item on the list, and language is one we can work on right now if we're willing. It's easier to start cha- it's easier to start saying you all, y'all, or you folks instead of you guys than to change the wage gap tomorrow. Let's begin creating now the kind of society we want to live in later. I think that's a nice kind of summary of the article. And this is also an article that I usually teach in the gender and communication class. And it kind of is up in the air how students respond to this. Sometimes students are like really, really behind this idea of changing our language. And sometimes other students are like, yeah, you know, like, sure, I get why it's important, but it's not like top on my list. And I would encourage everyone, if you're interested in this article, to kind of spend some time thinking about the relationship between language and our air quotes reality. 
does our language shape or change our reality? And how is our reality reflected back in our language? I think it's also worth noting that this article is dated. And so Kleinman makes no room or offers no discussion on how on how gendered language also excludes other marginalized groups, perhaps even more marginalized groups, and how the terms like male and man often only ever include cisgender heterosexual men. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. One final thing that I kind of wanted to point out with this use of gendered language and maybe a play a little bit with the words in the manual and in the text, I think that if we were to read these both literally together, we could argue for a queer and a gender queer interpretation of the text. If readers of the text are all men or are to apply the text to themselves as if they were men, what is to stop a woman reader from taking a virtuous woman like that in Proverbs 31 as a wife? If we must transgress and transcend gender roles as we read sacred text, then can we not also appreciate the wisdom and power in those who do so outside of the text? Are we not to liken the text to ourselves and take it from our study out into the world? If these principles apply to everyone and we are to transcend gender to appreciate them in their fullness, then perhaps we can also see divinity and wisdom personified in our non-binary, trans, and gender non-conforming friends and family. Continuing on similar lines, thinking about gender and sexism, as feminist readers, it's really difficult to ignore the critiques of women that are present in the first 10 chapters of Proverbs. There are even, I think it's chapter seven that's like entirely devoted to like evil women yes. will tempt you and they'll like lead you to hell. Yes. And so we just pulled a few, I mean, there are many verses to choose from, but some of the verses scattered throughout the chapters say things like in chapter five, it says the lips of a strange woman drop as honeycomb and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as two, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Stay far from her and do not go on to, and do not go unto the door of her house, lest you give your years unto the cruel and mourn when thy flesh and body are consumed, when you are ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger. Oh my gosh. Ooh, okay, you spooky. also have to read chap you also have to read this one from uh, chapter seven too, because it's <laughs> also like kind of along the same lines. Yeah. And then later, along similar lines in chapter seven, it says basically chapter seven tells the story of a woman who is enticing a man to her bed and says, and this is what it says, quote, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. And with the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her as an ox goeth to the slaughter. <laughs> Many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Of it's so dramatic <laughs> it's so dramatic and it's so spooky and as i was reading these first um 10 chapters and coming across these stories of these like evil temptress like wicked women uh -huh. i think maybe at different at a different stage in my feminist path or like in my feminist awakening i might have been really like hurt by these and so i want to make space for people who are feeling kind of attacked by these mm -hmm. verses but I recognize mm -hmm. now that in this stage of my feminist journey I'm kind of like able to laugh at this and be like this is so hilarious right. how how um how kind of like cartoony and like stereotypical femininity is cast as evil and it, yep. it's kind of like 
not unexpected to me and it seems more like a almost like a weird Disney movie where like you have the <laughs> wicked stepmother who's really yes. going to drag you down or something yep. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And there are even times too where like, there are even times too for me where I read stuff like this and I'm like, wow, if they think that like, if they think women are this bad, like I'm going to show them how bad mm-hmm. it really is. Mm-hmm. And also like really kind of embracing these like, stereotypes or these beliefs about women, which are totally inaccurate, and kind of taking them tongue-in-cheek. I think that there are probably as many different responses to these verses as there are feminists, and I love what you said before, making space and making room for all experiences of these verses. If you're hurt by them, saddened by them, frustrated by them, angered by them, sparked up by them, that's all appropriate and all valid. So, Yeah, definitely hold space for whatever you're feeling with these verses. Yeah, I'm also thinking about our friend Bergen who runs the womb account on Instagram. And I feel like she would both have a heavy critique of these verses, but I also think she would really lean into the fact that like, hey, women aren't like afraid to do this kind of dark journey Mm -hmm. into hell and to live close to the kind of ends of the world and to grapple with the deepest, messiest, honeycombed part of ourselves. And I think that's also a nice kind of take back of these verses. Absolutely. And that's such a beautiful reclamation. One thing for us that I feel like is like kind of unignorable about these select chapters, though, is that it becomes immediately apparent, at least for me, that the writer of these particular sections of Proverbs obviously has a huge issue with women who are tempting. Mm -hmm. And I can't say for sure, obviously, because I like wasn't there and I don't know who wrote it, like if this is from their own personal experience or not. But the emphasis on immoral women is very, very strong in these chapters. Like, I would say at least every other chapter, there's some kind of mention in there. But of course, women's sexuality and immorality is obviously more nuanced than Proverbs would have its readers believe. Strange, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, strange women would have meant women who are outside of the covenant. This could happen either with a foreign birth or by forsaking the covenant of their youth. The women in these chapters are portrayed as prostitutes and harlots and sometimes as adulteresses against their husbands. With a single exception in chapter 6, the women are the solicitors of sexual activity from men. We have words like flatter and force, which then implies that the responsibility for the sexual activity lies solely with the woman. This perspective strongly resonates with rape culture and victim blaming, and those who guide discussions around these topics in classrooms can be mindful and compassionate and informed about the harms these perspectives have on human sexuality. What we do know about the social standing and opportunities of women during this time is that it's unlikely that these women, some of whom may have been sex workers, were soliciting sex out of pure lust and wanton desire. It is infinitely more likely that if they were sex workers, their livelihood depended on their sex work, and that sex work offered women a measure of safety, provision, and sometimes more freedom than the social systems of the time would have have allowed her otherwise. 
So in this case, it's really off-putting to read such strong critiques of these women with, without an accompanying critique of the systems which place her in such positions. Additionally, we know that sex work and sex workers had a place in that society. And even if those positions weren't well-respected, they were still functional and accepted as necessary. Some of the Bible's most prominent women, heroes and anti-heroes, appeared as or genuinely were sex workers. People like Tamar, Rahab, and Delilah, to name a few. Today, we understand that sex work is a valid form of employment and advocate for the safety and protection of all sex workers. Whatever role these women take in sexual encounters in the text this week, the language used in Proverbs can be argued as dangerous and harmful. We have verses that read, Her paths incline to death, none that go into her return. Her steps go into hell, and she consumes your body and flesh. And even, like, this was my favorite one in chapter 7, These women hunt men and slay them like an ox in the slaughter. And even though, you know, we've said earlier, like, this kind of makes us, like, giggle and laugh because it's, like, this old, old story that just has been repeated ad nauseum. Like, we've heard it a million times before. I also have a legitimate worry about this kind of language for a couple of reasons. First, this language villainizes the woman. Secondly, it seems an easy path, a slippery slope indeed, from abstractly talking about the violent sexuality of women to the concrete punishment of women for their sexuality. It's also really strange for me to read these words because it's almost as if Proverbs is showing a world that seems completely opposite to the one that I live in. It's one where women and women's sexuality is portrayed as violent and deadly. It's almost laughable when I say it out loud because I can hear the echo of the same advice that I imagine giving to my daughter about men who would take advantage of her. We know that women's sexuality has long been villainized and it seems to take kind of a personified form here in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs. If we look at the way righteous and virtuous women are written about in chapters 12 and 31, we'll see that no mention of sensuality or sexuality is made. So in subtle and also not so subtle ways, it seems that Proverbs would have its readers believe that wicked women are those who desire that a man give and come unto her, contrasted by women who desire to give all she has and come unto him. So as we move on from gendered and sexist language present in the book of Proverbs, we wanted to draw your attention really quickly to chapter 8, which is where we find the personification of Lady Wisdom. I found this really nice, lovely quote from a shocking source, actually, the Old Testament student manual on the church website. And in this, they write, quote, chapter eight, wherein wisdom is personified, seems to not be an abstraction, but a personality indicating a member of the Godhead. So that's like pretty exciting little like drop breadcrumb thing for you to follow um, if you're interested in exploring this avenue more. Um, The writings about wisdom in these chapters is pretty stunning, like they're scattered throughout the entire book of Proverbs, and we suggest reading those. And if you're interested in hearing more about Lady Wisdom, we suggest listening to our episode titled by the same name, Lady Wisdom, to learn a little bit more. And we'll be sure to link that in the show notes. I also think it's worth noting that a lot of the people who are really like situated in the Heavenly Mother realm will also 
will often turn to these wisdom chapters and look for this kind of feminine personified description of lady wisdom and kind of make connections between lady wisdom and heavenly mother. Perhaps the last thing that we want to say about Proverbs is turning our attention to nuance. Something that really struck us about this book was that these sayings can be easily applied to opposing perspectives and opinions on a subject based on one's values, and that can be kind of tricky. So for example, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, the verse reads, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. But what does this actually mean? Well, I think it depends largely on our answer to the question, who is God? And the thing is, the proverb is right. And whatever paths you walk is largely going and whatever paths you walk are largely going to depend on who your God is. Who is God? And who is your God? Some might say that God is the God of the scriptures. This year we've seen a God of fire and flood a God of genocide and assault, a God of child sacrifice, a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of nature, a steadfast and forgiving God, a God who is fickle, a wise God, a God of the oppressed, a God of the oppressor, a liberating God, a feminist God, and a misogynist God. We've seen a God of miracles, of dance and song and more. So again, who is your God? If I trust in a Lord of vengeance... Vengeance shall direct my paths. If I trust in a God of love, on the other hand, a God of forgiveness and mercy, then love, forgiveness, and mercy shall direct my paths. If I trust in a God of violent nationalism or white supremacy, then violent nationalism and white supremacy shall guide my paths. If we bring nuance into Proverbs, we can find that they are ripe with questions beneath the answers. Absolutely. Oh, that's so, so beautiful. One thing for me that really stuck out when I was reading Proverbs was that surety, that sense of certainty from the author. It really seemed to me that whoever wrote Proverbs seems to have all the answers. And this is why, like I said earlier, I love reading Proverbs in the broader context of the books around it. Proverbs seems to be like a lone answer among a text among a collection of texts that brings us many questions. And so, I don't know, I was playing around with this idea. Tell me what you think. But I like to think about Proverbs being a step on the path of wisdom. Perhaps knowing it all is a phase or a stage. I like thinking about Proverbs as a parent who has to pull answers out of nowhere to every single question that their child asks. I'm there right now and I've been there before and I definitely feel like I know enough to be able to write my own book of Proverbs for my kids. But I also love reading Ecclesiastes right after that because Ecclesiastes reads like a grandparent's advice to their grandkids or even to their own kids. Ecclesiastes is a little bit softer, a little bit less sure while still remaining secure. It's rooted without digging its heels in. It has a gentle acknowledgement and a nuanced understanding of life. It's also been really interesting noticing these uh, differences, subtle differences between Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, and noting that the church actually focuses more of its study in the manual on Proverbs. And it was really funny as we were prepping for the episode, Elise and I were like, uh, I don't know what to say about Proverbs. I'm really like feeling like I like Ecclesiastes way, way more. So mm-hmm. it's just been like really, really interesting to note that. 
So as you're working through the book of Proverbs, I think um, a framework that we can consider them in is one that Elise introduced to us last week, which is the idea of each of these texts in the book of wisdom um, can be viewed as a part of a string of pearls where each is as valuable as its neighbor. Each is stunning and iridescent and beautiful as the one before it and the one after. I think Channing has it just right. We were both drawn more to the book of Ecclesiastes than we were to Proverbs. And I think for a couple of different reasons, like on first read, there was something far more tangible and personal and kind of grounded than we've seen in like Psalms or Proverbs. But after more research, the book of Ecclesiastes is not like there's so much more here and I think it's actually really nitty gritty and it offers an incredible critique of systems and also an awesome critique of capitalism. So (gasps) it is more, yeah, it is more than like, it is more than what meets the eye maybe on first read. And so we're excited to, to share a little bit of our findings with you. Everything that we're going to share comes from a dissertation by Lydia Hernandez Marcial titled Under the Sun, Contradictions and Resistance in Ecclesiastes from a Puerto Rican Perspective. It's an awesome dissertation. If you have time and attention, it's like a couple hundred pages, but fantastic, fantastic work. So to start off, the book of Ecclesiastes opens with a verse that identifies the content of the book as, quote, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, our translation says preacher, but in other translations, they use the word kohelet, which is like the word for Ecclesiastes, or it's the like main character in the book of Ecclesiastes. But Kohelet is also kind of linked to King Solomon. So you have like the preacher who is Kohelet, who is sometimes King Solomon. Uh-huh. Yep. And so Hernandez Marcial writes, the book uses Kohelet as a character who offers his views about the ruling power, the socio-political situation of the colony of Judea, and ways of resisting this dominant power, end quote. However, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the voice and the narrative and the commentary from Kohelet is often really ambiguous and at times quite contradictory. There's one voice, the voice of the King Kohelet, or kind of like King Solomon, who is identified with the ruling power of the empire. But in the same chapters, in the same book, there's another voice of Kohelet, not the king, but the voice of Kohelet who critiques and resists the imperial system. Of this, the author writes, quote, Kohelet is a hybrid persona who has learned how to survive in colonial Judea as a colonized subject. As such, Kohelet moves ambiguously between critique and support of the colonial system and resists imperial dominance by finding opportunities to benefit from it as a way to survive, end quote. Oh, this is so fascinating. So first, we're going to start off by kind of examining Ecclesiastes through the voice of the King Kohelet or the preacher. This voice offers a positive view of himself and his kingdom. In his eyes, he is a wise and prosperous king, greater than those who came before him. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 9, the text says, quote, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water. I got me servants and maidens. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem. I gathered me also silver and gold. So I was great and increased more than all that were there before me in Jerusalem. 
However, we also notice throughout the text that King Kohelet's success was limited. All his wisdom and greatness did not help him succeed in all his endeavors. No matter how much time and effort King Kohelet put into his success and accumulation, he ends chapter one by saying, quote, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow, end quote. I, this verse stands out to me for a couple of reasons, because Channing and I have said on the podcast something to the effect of like, once you see, you can't unsee. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that expansion of knowledge or wisdom can bring with it a lot of sorrow. And I think, for example, this can happen with the ways that we learn of our involvement in racism and white supremacy, right? The more knowledge we gain, the more kind of sorrow and grief that can bring. And I also think that this is what's going on with the church right now in relationship to like the church hotline and and all the accounts of abuse that are being publicized. And I think that there is kind of a cultural shift. Like once you learn about these things that have been going on in the church for so long, and once you learn about church history, it's really hard to unsee. And with this learning or with this new wisdom and knowledge, there comes a lot of grief. Yeah, that verse also really stuck out to me as well. It's so it's so good. It just seriously like hits right to the bone. We also see this message show up again in chapter two, where King Kohelet's frustrations revolve around how working hard, using one's wisdom, knowledge, and skill does not guarantee that one will enjoy the fruit of the labor. This fact happens to cause his heart to despair. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2, we see King Kohelet relate to King Solomon, and we know how unjust and oppressive life was under Solomon's rule. First Kings reminds us that Solomon's kingdom was not a place of peace and joy. Instead, the price of peace was brought by ruling with an iron fist, by making sure that everyone fell in line. Additionally, Solomon's large-scale building projects and maintenance of his kingdom required tremendous amounts of resources and a large workforce. And guess what? He enlisted all of Israel for forced labor. Of this, Hernandez Marcial writes, quote, Overall, the reader finds that wisdom neither assures the permanence of wealth, honor, and a long life, nor is it enough to answer the core question about human existence, about life and death under imperial domination, end quote. So we have this whole kind of sketch of King Kohelet going on, but at the same time, we also hear the voice of Kohelet, not the king. And one of the Really, one of the distinguishing characteristics of King Kohelet's time was a was oppression under the colonial administration. And Kohelet, not the king, has some strong words about the things that are going on under this system of oppression. For example, chapter 3, verse 16, Kohelet says, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that wickedness. And the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. Chapter 4, verse 1. So I returned and considered all the oppression that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. I think in these verses we hear Kohelet speaking boldly and bravely in denouncing the political and economic power of the time. And later in chapter 7, verse 7, Kohelet states that, quote, oppression makes the wise stupid. What a, honestly, like, what a line, right? Like, <laughs> clearly, clearly yeah. challenging the notion that rulers are endowed with some, like, 
holier, higher, higher than thou wisdom. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Kohelet is saying, look, if you are participating in this system of oppression, particularly if you are like one of the colonial class members, oppression actually means you lack wisdom. Kohelet also exposes the slowness of justice, which means that the wicked and the oppressors are exempt from punishment or any type of consequence. For example, chapter 8, verses like 10 through 14, talk about how the religious authorities and the people of the town end up honoring all of the wicked people at their funerals, like honoring their oppressors. Wicked people go in and out of the temple freely as if they have done as if they have not done any evil deeds, and the wicked go about bragging about all of their vile activities. And perhaps one of my favorite critiques Kohelet gives is a critique of wealth and greed, because it is so applicable to our time right now. So King Kohelet's prosperity created a greedy society where, quote, envy between workers issued in competitiveness, greed, and an obsession with riches and the production of profit. Everyone wants to excel and get a bigger piece of the pie, end quote. Now, many verses throughout Ecclesiastes describe how this obsession with wealth and greed upholds the systemic corruption of the time and negatively impacts the individual. It affects their family life. It affects their health and even so much as affecting their sleeping patterns. And I hope that this sketch, the way that greed and a desire for profit and wealth starts to feel eerily familiar to what it's like living and working under capitalism today. Yeah, absolutely. There are actually a couple of verses that really highlight that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, we hear, quote, He had neither son nor brother, and yet there was no end to all his toil. Also, his eyes were not satisfied with wealth. The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the one who love abundance with gain. Riches were kept by their owners to their hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Though they are parents of children, they have nothing in their hands. And finally, because all, and finally, quote, because all his days, his business is full of pain and vexation. Even at night, his mind is not at rest, end quote. After each of these examples, Kohelet, the critic, says, quote, there is also vanity, but other translations include the Hebrew word habel, which means injustice or inequity. Hernandez Marcial writes, quote, To Kohelet, greed is like a bottomless pit, incapable of being filled. Obsessing about riches is also habel, or injustice or inequity, because wealth does not mean anything if the person is incapable of enjoying it. Thus, Kohelet demonstrates how absurd working unceasingly to gain riches is, when in the end... Another person, and notably not the person who worked, will enjoy them, as was happening in Ptolemaic Judea, end quote. And we also want to note that this is happening today in the United States. Yeah, and to be clear, like, Kohelet isn't against wealth and having possessions. Like, Kohelet recognizes that he is living under a particular system, and so he recognizes that wealth can protect and wealth can help meet people's material needs, but rather, Kohelet is against the, quote, excessive accumulation of wealth and the ambition generated in the new colonial system where people wanted more without any chance to enjoy wealth as a product of one's toil, end quote. As we were kind of reading through these quotes, especially about a critique of like capitalism and work without rest, I was also reminded of a chapter in Proverbs. I don't remember exactly which one it is, but it'll 
be pretty striking to people because it talks about sleep. (laughs) And essentially, like, the text in Proverbs says, like, if you, if you like sleep late into the day, or if you like really sleep at all, like what the heck is wrong with you? Like get up and get to work. And I was really reminded again of, um, Trisha Hersey, who is, who is the CEO of the nap ministry who talks about the radical power of rest. And I don't know, like just like little tiny red flags, like went up as I was reading that chapter in Proverbs too. So I think it's really interesting um, just remembering that as we're going through this section in Ecclesiastes. Yeah. So I think one of the kind of the takeaways that I've have from this week is that sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes there are chapters that we study that the Come Follow Me manual thinks will go this one particular way, right? We'll read Proverbs and we'll read Ecclesiastes and we'll just kind of like focus on the messages of like Jesus and love and like everything's good and like, and women continue to like be virtuous and like repress your sexuality. I think that these are the messages that I think that the church wants us to take away from these chapters and so they don't feel threatened by assigning them. However, my takeaway is that there's actually loads of critique in both of these books that we can really, really use in our own personal study, in our family study. And if you're brave enough and bold enough, you could even use them in the classes you teach at church. But I've really appreciated looking at Ecclesiastes as this kind of like dipping. If you want a place to dip your toe in to a Mm -hmm. scriptural critique of capitalism, Mm -hmm. this week has the perfect opportunity for you to do so. Absolutely. And I think this is just like another prime example, like we've said elsewhere on the podcast, like, yes, the scriptures can sometimes be poison, but they can also be antidote. And this is like a really beautiful example of that playing out in real time. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends.